good morrow, listener well met. Park your ass and I'll get the brew on. Thermos style today. Someone kindly melted more water than they needed, so I get to cheat. Scurvy's received some attention in episodes to date, and I've rattled on with the assumption that everyone knows what scurvy is. But given its importance in maritime and polar history, and its rarity in modern, industrialised nations, a more detailed explanation of the horror and bafflement caused by this malady is warranted. Scurvy is the result of a vitamin C deficiency. We need vitamin C, or ascorbic acid, to produce collagen and to absorb iron from our diet. Collagen is a connective tissue in our bones, skin, ligaments, tendons, the list goes on. Almost every structure in our bodies uses this versatile super protein in some way, and the corollary is that if we can't manufacture it, our bodies fall apart. I mentioned that scurvy also affects the body's ability to absorb iron. This is bad news in terms of our blood. Without iron, we can't make haemoglobin. Without haemoglobin, we can't oxygenate our tissues. Oxygen deficiencies lead to lethargy, malaise and death. Scurvy kicks you two ways. Most animals can make their own ascorbic acid, and are therefore self-sufficient in terms of collagen manufacturing infrastructure. But higher primates, bats, some birds and guinea pigs, have to get their ascorbic acid from their diets. The gene for producing L-gulonolactine oxidase, the collagen manufacturing protein, is still in our DNA, but it's inactive. Some mutation in our history knocked it out of commission at a point when our diet was sufficiently replete with food loaded with ascorbic acid that that particular genetic drift didn't lump our ancestral population with any negative selective pressure. So long as they didn't try surviving on an all guinea pig diet, they were sweet. That dud gene didn't come to the fore until we started cooking our food. Ascorbic acid is heat labile. If you eat an all steak diet, but you like your steak rare, it'll still have enough cow-manufactured vitamin C in the meat to keep you in collagen and haemoglobin. If you eat nothing but steak, and you like your steak well done, you're on the scurvy diet. No vitamin C, no collagen, no haemoglobin, no good. Besides raw or partly cooked meat, ascorbic acid can come into your diet through brassicas, potatoes, almost any fruit, but particularly the citrus family, kiwi fruit, guavas, capsicums absolutely loaded with the stuff, strawberries and papayas. Not everyone has ready access to fresh fruit and vegetables. Inuit populations, for example, have survived on meat diets in part because they don't cook the ascorbic acid to blazes. Scurvy became the problem recounted in this narrative because people began travelling in circumstances that kept them removed from fresh fruit and vegetables, with meat either pickled or cooked to the point it no longer held any anti-scorbutic, scurvy-preventing, value. Sailors crossing oceans under sail fit that profile exactly, and scurvy caused more deaths among mariners than most other causes combined. For example, Ferdinand Magellan's expedition left port with 230 crew, and 208 of them died, mostly from scurvy. 
The symptoms of scurvy start with paleness and lethargy, and over several months progresses through blotchy skin, swollen limbs, teeth becoming loose in the gums, reduced ability to heal and old scars opening up, joint pain and easy bruising, bleeding from the mucous membranes, those tissues around all our orifices, and ends with the teeth falling out, fevers, jaundice, convulsions and death. These symptoms are recorded in Egyptian text from 1550 BCE, and Hippocrates makes note of scurvy in the 5th century BCE. It caused problems for crusaders in the 13th century, and until it was properly understood, with some nations not getting the message until the 20th century, scurvy stood as a limiting factor in maritime transport. As early as 1593, Admiral Richard Hawkins, an Elizabethan sea dog, recommended orange juice as a guard against scurvy. Everyone listen to Richard and it'll all be good. Wait, what? Why are you ignoring the orange juice thing? In 1614, John Woodall published The Surgeon's Mate, a guide for apprentice naval sawbones, and recommended fresh fruit and vegetables, or at least citrus juice, as an anti-scorbutic. Everyone listen to John. John's frickin' nailed it. What? Wait. No. Stop going to sea without vittling some citrus... Ah. So frustrating. Part of the problem was that people were altering so many factors between one voyage and another that the correlation between citrus juice and good health got caught up in the noise. The food available from one voyage to another might vary in quality or type to such an extent that identifying a single pertinent factor in reducing scurvy was almost impossible. Hawkins and Woodall were correct by accident. Another factor was a misapprehension about the nature of scurvy. For a long time it was assumed the problems were caused by putrefaction stemming from a diet of preserved food. This was thought to establish a rotting process in the victims and that they gradually decayed from the inside out. Another idea posed scurvy as a form of ptomaine poisoning arising from poorly preserved meat. So long as these incorrect notions held sway, no one was seriously looking at the problem as a dietary deficiency. In 1753, James Lind published A Treatise of the Scurvy, in which he recounted the experimental process by which he established citrus as the anti-scorbutic of choice, and even this methodical approach to solving the problem went largely ignored. Cook's voyages saw very level lows of crew illness, with scurvy entirely absent. In part, this was due to Cook actively seeking the best combination of anti-scorbutics in fiddling his ships, and in part, it's because his itinerary saw his ships call into ports in which fresh fruit and vegetables were readily available. After his own experiments on his crews, Cook recommended malt and wort, derivatives of barley, as his anti-scorbutics of choice. One of the problems preventing the adoption of the citrus fruit solution we know works so well today is that in preparing juices for long-term storage, they were often cooked and cooked in copper or iron cookware. Interactions between the antiscorbutic acid and the metal cooking vessels completely destroyed any antiscorbutic value remaining after the heat took its own toll. While Cook's vessels carried citrus juice, it may not have been effective due to the processes wreaked on it. It was anecdote rather than science that saw the citrus solution take hold in the Royal Navy. It was Admiral Gardner who, in 1793, disregarded Cook's advice about malt and wort and demanded his ships be supplied with lemon juice. 
a four-month journey to India by the HMS Suffolk turned the tide. The crew of the Suffolk and two attendant sloops arrived in better health than their departed. No scurvy. Admiral Gardner's hunch turned into evidence sufficient to convince innately superstitious sailors that lemon juice was the go, and the hurt and sick board of the Royal Navy paid heed. Lemon juice became the standard anti-scorbutic, and the decreased incidence of scurvy on Royal Navy vessels played its part in British successes through the 19th century. Able to stay at sea longer than their French counterparts, British ships could transit, fight and blockade for longer and with greater efficiency than those of their enemies. As mentioned earlier, the hint took some time to disseminate. Scurvy remained a problem until the citrus solution was adopted by a given navy or merchant fleet, or until the advent of motor vessels diminished transit times to the point where fresh fruit and vegetables were no longer bookend niceties to long voyages. Even with knowledge of how to prevent scurvy firmly established, people continued to suffer the malady when travelling in areas where access to the necessary antiscorbutics was impossible. Inland Antarctica stands as one of those places, and we have much scurvy to recount ahead of us. Scott had lime juice available on his 1901-1904 expedition, but didn't put a lot of stock in it as an antiscorbutic, because he knew of voyages by Royal Navy ships on which it had no effect. At the time, no one knew exactly what it was about citrus fruit that made them effective at combating scurvy, and so no quality control was employed in preparing citrus juice for use on ships. One batch might work wonders, and another batch might do nothing, simply because of a difference in temperatures or vessels used in preparation. Scott's want of an effective antiscorbutic cost his first Antarctic expedition primacy at the South Pole, when Ernest Shackleton's scurvy symptoms cut short a hauling trip just 80 nautical miles short of their goal. Cases of scurvy among the expeditioners dropped after Scott's first year on the ice, likely because seal meat became a prominent part of everyone's diet making up any shortfall in vitamin C arising from the dearth of fresh fruit and vegetables. It wasn't until 1907 that two Norwegian physicians, Axel Holst and Theodor Froelich, established an animal dietary model for scurvy using experiments on guinea pigs. And in 1927, Zent Georg... Oh, Hungarian. I'm really sorry, Hungarian speakers. Zent Georgi a Hungarian biochemist, isolated ascorbic acid as the compound of interest. Industrially synthesized vitamin C, derived from glucose, became available in the 1930s. Easily transportable in quantities far in excess of daily intake requirements, and readily introduced to processed forms of food staples, manufactured vitamin C has all but eradicated scurvy from the developed world. In 2006, Nick Johnson, author of the now sadly defunct blog Big Dead Place and the excellent book of the same name, offered an ounce of gold, a night in a brothel, and three bottles of vitamin C tablets to the first overwinterer within the United States Antarctic program to receive an official medical diagnosis of scurvy. While it sounds like a clickbait gambit, this was Nick Johnson's way of highlighting the logical flaw in an attempt by Raytheon Polar Services to reduce the number of reported medical incidents at American bases in Antarctica. In 2002, Raytheon, the company contracted to run the USAP bases between 1999 and 2011, instituted a $50 a month incentive 
to employees whose departments reported no injuries and, surprise, the number of injuries reported per month decreased. The number of injuries reported and the number of injuries are not the same thing though, and Nick Johnson suspected people weren't behaving with greater attention to safety, but simply not reporting medical problems due to peer pressure to not fuck up everyone's bonus. This suspicion was vindicated when a Freedom of Information request in 2011 yielded evidence that hundreds of reportable injuries went unreported under this system. Nick Johnson's response to Raytheon's incentive to not report a problem was to give people an incentive to report a problem. Couching this in terms of concern that people weren't reporting modern-day cases of scurvy because of the ridicule such a diagnosis might carry, the offered prize stood as the exact corollary of Raytheon's monthly keep-it-to-yourself bonus. The article covering the incentive and offering hints and tips on how to guarantee potential candidates didn't fall off the narrow path to scurvy-mediated fame and fortune by accidentally ingesting anything remotely nutritious or vitamin-fortified was a hoot to read, and I suspect played a part in his 2012 Antarctic job offer being rescinded the day before Nick Johnson headed to Christchurch, the USAP's jumping-off point for McMurdo and Scott Amundsen bases. Nick committed suicide in 2012. Big Dead Place went offline sometime in 2014. I miss reading updates of his activities and rereading his cache of blog articles, but mostly I miss knowing Nick was out and about, being the engaged and insightful person his writing demonstrated him to be. Our correspondence amounted to a handful of emails and an article I wrote for him. Holding up anything to someone like that for critique is pretty daunting, but I'm sad I never got to share this podcast with him. No one ever claimed his prize, by the way. <laughs>